please stand for the reading of the word from Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped me to spread the gospel so that it has been known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Some proclaim Christ from envy, rivalry, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering in my, in my imprisonment. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here today, whether uh, you are here with us in this room or online, uh, we are glad to have you here. All right, I'm going to say one thing before I jump into the sermon. It's not on my text, which means it's probably a mistake, but I was teaching a class, uh, and this, this semester I was teaching a class at 10, but I am teaching a Bible class uh, for freshmen at ACU this semester. It's my first time to do this in like, I don't know, 20 years, and it's a lot of fun. And the first day, I invited my students to come to Highland. One of my students is here. And if she doesn't tell me on Tuesday, I was invited to lunch by a half dozen people, I'm going to be very disappointed in you, Highland. If she doesn't say somebody saw me and cared about me and asked me my name and where I was from, I'm going to be very disappointed in you, Highland. Don't make me disappointed. Highland Church of Christ. Is that like Highland's full name? Like if you're saying like Shane Warren Hughes, Highland Church of Christ. Anyway, I say that to say this. I'm not trying to like guilt you into hospitality, but um, college students right now are looking for a church home. And research has shown that if a college student does not engage in church community in the first like two to four weeks of college, odds are they may not engage in church for the rest of their lives, right? The peer group that they form in the first couple of weeks of college can dictate in a very significant uh, amount of weight the trajectory of their spiritual development the rest of their lives. And if we as a church are not focused on that, then what are we doing? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, for, uh, for the goodness that you've given us, for the opportunities that you've given us, for the field that is ripe within us, we give you praise. So, Father, please bless this church to do your good work, to fulfill your good purpose, to follow your son Jesus wherever that leads. Whether that's to the mountaintop or to the darkest valley, we will follow. Just give us the courage. It's in your son's name we pray, and the church together says, amen. So, I want to go back to last week. I want to remind you a couple things. First of all, bring your Bible or your cell phone to church for the next few weeks so that you can follow along in the text. We're in Philippians 1, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. So, if you want to kind of put your bookmark in one spot and your thumb in the other, that's great. Bring your Bible. The second is to commit to be here for the next three or four weeks. Do not skip a Sunday. Do not sleep in. Be here because this, this sermon series kind of builds on itself week to week. And so you really need to be in this room for the next two or three weeks. You made a commitment last week. I expect you to keep it. But last week we asked that question. When Paul is talking to the Philippian church, 
When he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You see those three alls in there. I, all my prayers for all of you, I always pray. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the people that he loves. He's talking about the Philippian church. And Acts chapter 16 kind of lets us inside and sees just a few glimpses of who that church actually is. To understand that, you have to understand what the city of Philippi is. The city of Philippi is a Roman colony that was, that was founded to control the region of Macedonia. And, and what they did to help center the power in that city was they gave land allotments as retirement to former Roman soldiers. So if you served your time, you could, you could receive as kind of like your retirement benefits a piece of land near Philippi so that you could go and, and live and, and have a life. And so what that did was it made the city of Philippi in a very Grecan culture a very Roman city. It's kind of the way that Austin is like this very fascinating culture in the, in the very normal part of Texas. I had to be very careful with my terms. It's a, it's, it's, in California, I would, would talk about Fresno, but that doesn't, there's a reason they don't call it Fresno, yes. Um, that was too far. Paul's, Paul's writing to this church that's it's a, it's a Roman colony. And, and, he's, and he's planted a church there. And he goes because he wasn't trying to get there. He was trying to get somewhere else. But the text says that the, the spirit of Jesus blocked the way. And then that night he has a vision from a man from Macedonia saying, come here, we need you. And so he listens to that voice and he goes to Macedonia. The first place he goes is Philippi because Philippi is kind of the regional center. It's the power structure. On the east coast, that would be New York. On the west coast, that would be San Francisco. I'm sorry, Seattle and LA, you just don't count. San Francisco is where it is. And in the city, you know, in, in the, the Midwest, it's Denver, of course. That's the most important city in the Midwest. Um, I'm from Denver. Uh, slowing down. Um, and he meets three interesting people there. You, you see, in the beginning of Acts, what happens is that Paul tries to go to, like, the synagogue first. He goes to the synagogue and he teaches there, and, and there some converts form, and that's how he begins the church in that area. But in Philippi, he doesn't go to the synagogue, probably because the synagogue doesn't exist. Now, in extra-biblical um, resources, we know that to have a synagogue, what you had to have was 12 adult Jewish men. That was like the, the bare minimum to form that, that structure, 12 full-grown men. But Paul doesn't go to a synagogue. He goes to a tree by a river. And there's some beautiful image there in going to a tree by a river. It's reaching back into the Old Testament and that story of who God is to Psalm chapter 1 where it says that wisdom is like a tree planted beside a river. And Paul goes there because there's no synagogue. And who does he meet there but some women that are studying Scripture together? And one of those women is a cloth merchant. Her name is Lydia. And, and, and she is a person of influence and means. 
And we can infer some things about her just based on the little information that we have about her. The first is, after she is converted to Christ, she invites Paul into her home. Now, at first, that might sound like she invited Paul to stay for a little while, but that's not exactly what it means. Remember in Lost in Translation a couple of weeks ago when we talked about patronage? She invites Paul to serve under her umbrella of protection as a patron. And it's going to get tricky later in Philippians when he has to thank them for the gift because he's not exactly, he doesn't serve Lydia, but he is grateful for the help. It's also fascinating because she's a woman, and to become a person of, of, of influence and means, you'd have to be pretty savvy in the first century because just about any Roman man could come and take what they wanted from a woman in that time. And so she is able to, to be smart enough to keep her business and to make her business. It may mean that she has another patron that's offering kind of protection for her, but she is a person that is wealthy and of means, and she is converted to the gospel from reason. You can imagine that Paul says, go out in the night and see the stars in the sky. See the beauty that God has made. You can imagine him telling about the wonder of the, of the Trinity, the infinite wisdom and depth of God. And she sees that and she wants that for her life. And so she begins to follow Christ. And after he's taken into her house, it things like, looks like things are going pretty well. He begins to preach in the city and other places, but this, this fortune teller keeps following him. And we find out later that this fortune teller is, uh, is possessed by a demon. That's the skill that she has. And uh, she keeps saying the same thing over and over again. The demon keeps saying, in the name of, oh, that's not it. She says, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. The demon's preaching the gospel. Do you see that? The demon is speaking the truth about who God is, but it's irritating Paul because it keeps interrupting him and he can't get a sentence out without this fortune teller blabbing her mouth, and so he casts out the demon so he can do his job. Well, that's frustrating to a few men that own that little girl because that's how they made their money. She was a slave, she was possessed. And the gospel set her free. It set her free. She encounters the gospel uh, through the, the power of the Holy Spirit, through the, through the deliverance that she's offered. It's very different than Lydia. It's the power of God that sets her on Jesus. And I can imagine, and you can too, if you close your eyes, as, as Paul is writing this letter, that he can imagine that little girl who's maybe grown into a young woman right now, and maybe she's just the same as she always was. She can't help preaching the gospel because of what God has done for her. Well, those guys that were deprived of their income, they would do what normal people would do when that happens. They sue. If a taxi driver gets their taxi wrecked, if somebody burns down your business, they, they sue and Paul and his friends are thrown into prison. Man, what a turnaround from the start of the time that they landed there in Philippi. And he encounters the warden. Now, like I said a couple weeks ago, a prison isn't for people that have been convicted of crimes in the first century. It's for holding people that are awaiting trial. And Paul and his friends are put in stocks. 
Now, most of us can imagine stocks being that kind of wooden contraption that bends you over with your arms out. Most of my experience in telling you this is not from actual history, but from Renaissance fairs that I attended. And I think that what happens then is most of the villagers throw tomatoes at you. I think that's, that's not exactly how it works. But, but the stocks in the first century were fundamentally different. The purpose of those stocks in the Renaissance fair is to shame you, is to make a public spectacle of you. But that's not where Paul is. Paul is in the pit of a prison, and he's put in stocks, and they're basically a contraption that contorts your legs in such a way that you can't ever really get comfortable. Your muscles are always working in such a way that you can't rest. And over hours and over days, the stocks just kind of emotionally and and physically break you. The jailer has Paul and his friends in the stocks in prison. It's not to shame them, it's to destroy them. And then the miraculous happens. It's not the miracle that you think it is. It's the Spirit of God in Paul and his friends that are singing hymns in the middle of the night as their body is being contorted in painful ways. And I I wonder what song they're singing. I wonder what song they're singing in prison. Maybe it's the song that Paul remembers that he writes in chapter 2. Because it's that story of Jesus Christ. It's the story of Jesus who was with God and was God and gave up divinity to become a human, not only a human, but took on the form of a slave. Not only a slave, but was killed, executed, not just executed, but on a cross. And maybe in that moment, Paul is rejoicing because what he sees in that story is a little bit of his own life, that he has been blessed to to, to suffer the way that Jesus suffered. It doesn't really matter what the song was because what happens next is a miracle. It's it's an earthquake. It's a divine earthquake, and it, it releases the stocks, and it opens the gates. And the story in Acts chapter 16, the, 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 the warden immediately draws his sword to kill himself. Because in those days, you know, the warden was probably some ex-soldier that retired, given land, and, and took on this role. Uh, in those days, if the prisoners broke three, it was literally on your head. If they broke free, what would happen next is the warden would be put in stocks and then executed. And so his, his mind, he's like, well, okay, let's avoid all the suffering, and I'll just take care of that moment myself. But Paul says, don't. We're all still here. Don't. And the warden is converted when he hears the gospel. But the way that he's converted is by the cruciform living, the example of what Paul and his friends do by not just running away. Do you see how that happens? Lydia is converted through reason and experience of of knowing God. The fortune teller is converted through Holy Spirit power that sets her free. The warden is converted with the cruciform living of two disciples that don't give up. Paul had one purpose in Philippi, and then he goes and he encounters this other opportunity in the slave girl, and then when all of that goes wrong and he ends up in prison, there's yet another opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. Paul doesn't matter what his circumstance is because his eyes are focused. There is like a laser focus on what his job is in that city to preach the gospel. It doesn't matter if things look great and you're in Lydia's house. It doesn't matter if things are terrible and you're in the pit of prison. His focus is the same. It's, it's kind of like a friend of mine who I, I knew when I was in Arkansas, and, and he was a, 
an investor, and he, he managed a portfolio. And it was one of those seasons where the stock market had been down pretty terribly for several months, and I was really feeling bad for him. And I went to him and I said, look, I'm, I'm sorry about the stock market. I hope, I hope you're doing okay. I hope your business isn't really suffering. And he, and he looked at me and he kind of smiled and he said, look, I, I'm an investor. I make money whether the market goes up or I make money when the market goes down. And then he taught me about puts and calls and, and how that works. And I looked at him and I said, that's great because I lose money whether the market goes up or whether the market goes down. But, but you see what I'm saying. Paul doesn't care if he is in the house of a fashionista or in the stocks in the pit because the center of his life will not change. It's not about circumstances. It's about Jesus, and he is going to preach Jesus, whether it's through reason or power or just bearing up under suffering. Now I want us to fast forward a few years. Not that the prison that Paul found himself in Philippi, but the prison where he is when he's writing this letter. And he's, in, he's under the same charge for preaching the gospel. And maybe this time there might not be a miraculous escape up God's sleeve. He may be writing this letter from Rome, and it's, he's not going to get out. But for Paul, it doesn't matter. Preach the gospel. Speak the truth. In fact, when you bear up under that suffering and you do the right thing anyway, others see that and they're inspired. And they have the courage to do the same thing. You would think in the, the economy of heaven that when you step on one person that's speaking the truth and living into the kingdom, that that would stop it. But it's not how it works. It's like cockroaches. You kill one gospel moment and God's spirit creates a hundred more. It's like squash bugs in my wife's garden. You kill one of those squash bugs, you see 15 scatter. You smash a hundred of those eggs, there are a thousand eggs underneath another leaf. You cannot stop the gospel when people are faithful carrying it out. It's just the way it is. But Paul is also aware that he's in prison. And other preachers, for lack of a better word, missionaries, are going to see his chains as the means to get ahead. Like somehow that if, if he's in prison, that they can somehow capture more market share of the kingdom of God. And, and Paul doesn't care. Even if someone is doing this for the wrong motives, God doesn't care. Because he will use us even when we don't have it all together. God is going to use you even if you don't know all the answers. God is going to use you even if you're doing something and it's kind of the wrong motives. God doesn't care because what God can do with our, our half-formed ideas, what God can do with our half-formed attempt is create something amazing. That's what the gospel is. It's kind of like what somebody said at the beginning of the discernment. It was a friend of mine, and they, they wrote and they said, hey, you know, you guys go through this discernment about women in leadership. Uh, you know who's going to benefit from all this? all the other preachers in Abilene. They're the ones that are going to benefit from this. And I wrote back carefully, and it took me a couple of days to write this. But I wrote back, look, those guys are my friends. We eat lunch together. They're not rejoicing. They're standing with us. 
So it's no surprise what Paul says. What is happening right now looks like an end. But there are no ends. There are no dead ends when you are traveling towards the kingdom of God. When we keep our focus on kingdom living, no matter what our circumstances, it gives others the courage to do the same. When you focus on kingdom living, no matter what your circumstances, no matter where you are, it allows others to have the courage to do the same. Did you know that right now there are estimated more Christians in the underground church in China than there are Christians in America right now? In a place where, there, where Christians suffer persecution and, and regular mistreatment, there are more Christians there than there are in America right now. There are more churches in rural, impoverished Africa than there are churches of Christ in America right now. Because when you live in suffering, but you have the courage to speak the gospel, others have the courage to do the same. I don't know why that's true. It's just one of those rules about the gospel. When you keep your focus on kingdom living, no matter what happens, it gives others the courage to do the same. Because no matter the circumstance, no matter what happens, what matters is Christ is proclaimed. Now, I want to make this very, a very clear application here, and I need you to pay attention because I don't want you to miss what I'm going to say. In the last year and a half, Highland has a lot more empty seats than we've ever had, and that's hard. It's happened because the pandemic came and went, and it accelerated some of the decline the North American churches have been experiencing. It just sped it up. It also came and went because we experienced uh, a decision about women in leadership. And some of our brothers and sisters who fear God and love this church had to make a tough decision. But I want us to lean into the truth of the gospel. The truth that says that there are no dead ends when we follow kingdom living. And maybe, just maybe, the empty seats aren't a loss. Maybe they're an opportunity. Maybe what this means, just maybe, is that some college freshman is going to walk in and sit next to you or maybe in your seat just because they don't know any better. And that's an opportunity. Maybe that's God at work. And I get the other side of this, that some of those people that left have, had been here for a very long time. And they were your very near and dear friends. We lost friends. Natalie and I lost friends out of the discernment. And we'd only been here like six months when it started. It was hard. And maybe your Bible class and your life group just isn't the same anymore. And that's a grief. Because that empty seat means a good friend that's not here anymore and they're somewhere else. Maybe, just maybe, that loss isn't a dead end. Maybe what that means is it's time for your small group to begin to think about how you can open up your arms to someone new. Maybe that, maybe that just means that it's time for your class to begin not thinking about just what's good for you, but what's good for the generations that are below you. How you can adopt and begin to love some of the young adults that are coming into our church. Because here's what God is going to do in the next few months. We've already seen it, and it makes me excited. 
is that we're seeing young families come into our church and they're kind of testing the waters. And they'll come to me and they'll ask me questions like, so tell me a little bit more about this discernment and, and when, when is this going to start and, and how, how is it going to look and, and how… And, and they're asking me very tentative, very kind of shy questions to kind of feel this out. But what I hear behind those simple questions is a longing to be a part of a church where their daughters are going to be raised differently. To be a part of a church that, that fully grasps the way that they understand kingdom. And I'm sorry for the grief. I'm sorry for the loss. But I wonder what happens if we live as a church into the truth that God promises. That in the kingdom, there are no dead ends. But through God, the power of the Holy Spirit, God offers new and numerous opportunities for beginnings. For people like Lydia. For people like the slave girl. For people like the warden. Because for us, Highland Church of Christ, for us, no matter the circumstance, no matter what happens, what matters is that Christ is proclaimed. So last week, we, um, we talked about these ribbons, and I, I wanted you to reflect on a question. Last week, the question was, what is the unfinished work God is completing in your life? Where is the space in your world where you feel God moving? And I wanted you to just kind of think on that. So instead of pulling out your cell phone when you're bored and just flipping through to see what's happening, instead of watching the news, spend some time, some time meditating on that question. This week, I have a second question that I want to offer you. Where is the place in your life where you can use your imperfect circumstance to God's glory? Where is the place in your small group where you can use the imperfect circumstance to God's glory? Where is the place in your Bible class that you can use the imperfect circumstance to God's glory? Where is the place that we as a church can use our imperfect and sad, grief-filled circumstance to bring about God's glory? Because in the end, no matter the circumstance, no matter what happens, what matters is that Christ is proclaimed. Let's stand and sing.